Section 2 of Irish Wit and Humor. The author is anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. Dean Swift, Part 2. The Pies. Swift, in passing through the county of Cavan, called at a homely but hospitable house where he knew he should be well received. The Lady Bountiful of the mansion, rejoiced to have so distinguished a guest, runs up to him and with great eagerness and flippancy asks him what he will have for dinner. Will you have an apple pie, sir? Will you have a gooseberry pie, sir? Will you have a cherry pie, sir? Will you have a currant pie, sir? Will you have a plum pie, sir? Will you have a pigeon pie, sir? Any pie, madam, but a magpie. Short Charity Sermon The dean once preached a charity sermon in St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin, the length of which disgusted many of his auditors, which, coming to his knowledge, and it falling to his lot soon after to preach another sermon of the like kind in the same place, he took special care to avoid falling into the former error. His text was, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. The dean, after repeating his text in a more than commonly emphatical tone, added, Now, my beloved brethren, you hear the terms of this loan. If you like the security, down with your dust. The quaintness and brevity of the sermon produced a very large contribution. A Courtier's Retort while the prosecution for the draper's fourth letter was depending, Swift one day waited at the castle for an audience of Lord Carteret, the Lord Lieutenant, till his patience was exhausted, upon which he wrote the following couplet on a window and went away. My very good Lord, tis a very hard task for a man to wait here who has nothing to ask. The earl, upon this being shown to him, immediately wrote the following answer underneath. My very good dean, there are few who come here, but have something to ask, or something to fear. Lying Swift could not bear to have any lies told him, which his natural shrewdness and knowledge of the world generally enabled him to detect and when the party attempted to palliate them his usual reply was come come don't attempt to darn your cobwebs dr sacheverell some time after the expiration of dr sacheverell's punishment having been silenced three years from preaching and his sermon ordered to be burned the ministry treated him with great indifference, and he applied in vain for the vacant rectory of St. Andrew's Holborn. Having, however, a slender acquaintance with Swift, he wrote to him for his interest with government in his behalf, stating how much he had suffered in the cause of the ministry. Swift immediately carried his letter to Lord Bolingbroke, then Secretary of State 
who railed much at Sacheverell, calling him a busy intermeddling fellow, a prig and an incendiary, who had set the kingdom in a flame which could not be extinguished, and therefore deserved censure instead of reward. Although Swift had not a much better opinion of the doctor than Lord Bolingbroke, he replied, True, my lord, but let me tell you a story. In a sea-fight in the reign of Charles the Second, there was a very bloody engagement between the English and Dutch fleets, in the heat of which a Scotch seaman was very severely bit by a louse on his neck, which he caught and stooping down to crack it between his nails, many of the sailors near him had their heads taken off by a chain-shot from the enemy, which dashed their blood and brains about him, on which he had compassion upon the poor louse, returned him to his place, and bid him live there at discretion, for as he had saved his life, he was bound in gratitude to save his. This recital threw my lord Bolingbroke into a violent fit of laughing, who, when it was over, said, The louse shall have the living for your story, and soon after Sacheverell was presented to it. Taxing the Air Lady Carteret, wife of the Lord Lieutenant, said to Swift, The air of Ireland is very excellent and healthy. "'For God's sake, madam,' said Swift, "'don't say so in England, for if you do, they will certainly tax it.'" Wisdom "'Wisdom,' said the dean, "'is a fox, who, after long hunting, will at last cost you the pains to dig out. It is a cheese, which, by how much the richer, has the thicker, the homelier, and the coarser coat, and whereof to a judicious palate the maggots are the best. It is a sack-posset, wherein the deeper you go you will find it the sweeter. Wisdom is a hen, whose cackling we must value and consider, because it is attended with an egg. But then, lastly, it is a nut, which, unless you choose with judgment, may cost you a tooth, and pay you with nothing but a worm. Epitaph on Judge Boat Here lies Judge Boat within a coffin. Pray, gentle folks, forbear your scoffin. A boat, a judge, yes, where's the blunder? A wooden judge is no such wonder. And in his robes you must agree, no boat was better decked than he. Tis needless to describe him fuller in short, he was an able sculler. On Stephen Duck, the thresher and favorite poet. The thresher duck could o'er the queen prevail. The proverb says no fence against a flail. From threshing corn he turns to thresh his brains, for which her majesty allows him gains. Though tis confessed that those who ever saw his poems think them all not worth a straw. Thrice, happy duck, employed in threshing stubble, thy toil is lessened and thy profits double. 
Dialogue between Swift and his landlord. The three towns of Navin, Kells, and Trim, which lay in Swift's route on his first journey to Laracor, seem to have deeply arrested his attention, for he has been frequently heard to speak of the beautiful situation of the first, the antiquity of the second, and the time-shaken towers of the third. There were three inns in Navan, each of which claims to this day the honor of having entertained Dr. Swift. It is probable that he dined at one of them, for it is certain that he slept at Kells in the house of Jonathan Belcher, a Leicestershire man, who had built the inn in that town on the English model, which still exists, and in point of capaciousness and convenience, would not disgrace the first road in England. The host, whether struck by the commanding sternness of Swift's appearance, or from natural civility, showed him into the best room, and waited himself at table. The attention of Belcher seems to have won so far upon Swift as to have produced some conversation. "'You're an Englishman, sir,' said Swift. "'Yes, sir. What is your name?' "'Jonathan Belcher, sir, an Englishman and Jonathan, too, in the town of Kells. Who would have thought it? What brought you to this country?' "'I came with Sir Thomas Taylor, sir, and I believe I could reckon fifty Jonathans in my family, sir.' "'Then you are a man of family?' "'Yes, sir, I have four sons and three daughters by one mother, a good woman of true Irish mould.' Have you been long out of your native country? Thirty years, sir. Do you ever expect to visit it again? Never. Can you say that without a sigh? I can, sir. My family is my country. Why, sir, you are a better philosopher than those who have written volumes on the subject. Then you are reconciled to your fate? I ought to be so. I am very happy. I like the people and though I was not born in Ireland, I'll die in it, and that's the same thing. Swift paused in deep thought for near a minute, and then with much energy repeated the first line of the preamble of the noted Irish statute. Ipsis hibernis hiberniores. The English are more Irish than the Irish themselves. Roger Cox. What perhaps contributed more than anything to Swift's enjoyment was the constant fund of amusement he found in the facetious humor and oddity of the parish clerk, Roger Cox. Roger was originally a hatter in the town of Cavan, Trot being of a lively jovial temper and fonder of setting the fireside of a village alehouse in a roar over a tankard of ale or a bowl of whisky with his flashes of merriment and jibes of humour than pursuing the dull routine of business to which fate had fixed him wisely forsook it for the honourable function of a parish clerk which he considered as an office appertaining in some wise to ecclesiastical dignity. Since by wearing a band no small part of the ornament of the Protestant clergy, 
he thought he might not unworthily be deemed, as it were, a shred of the linen vestment of Aaron. Nor was Roger one of those worthy parish clerks who could be accused of merely humming the psalms through the nostrils as a sackbut, but much oftener instructed and amused his fellow parishioners with the amorous ditties of the waiting maid's lamentation, or one of those national songs which wake the remembrance of glorious deeds, and make each man burn with the enthusiasm of the conquering hero. With this jocund companion, Swift relieved the tediousness of his lonesome retirement, nor did the easy freedom which he indulged with Roger ever lead his humble friend beyond the bounds of decorum and respect. Roger's dress was not the least extraordinary feature of his appearance. He constantly wore a full-trimmed scarlet waistcoat of most uncommon dimensions, a light grey coat which altogether gave him an air of singularity and whim as remarkable as his character. To repeat all the anecdotes and witticisms which are recorded of the prolific genius of Roger in the simple annals of Laracor would fill a single volume. He died at the good old age of ninety. Soon after Swift's arrival at Laracor, he gave public notice that he would read prayers every Wednesday and Friday. On the first of those days, after he had summoned his congregation, he ascended the desk, and after sitting some time with no other auditor than his clerk Roger, he rose up, and with a composure and gravity that, upon this occasion, was irresistibly ridiculous, began, Dearly beloved Roger, the scripture moveth you and me in sundry places, and so proceeded to the end of the service. The story is not quite complete, but the fact is that when he went into the church he found Roger alone, and exclaimed with evident surprise, What, Roger, none here but you? Yes, sir, replied Roger dryly, turning over the book to find the lessons for the day. Sure you are here too. Roger and the Poultry there happened, while Swift was at Laracor, the sale of a farm and stock, the farmer being dead. Swift chanced to walk past during the auction, just as a pen of poultry had been put up. Roger bid for them, and was overbid by a farmer of the name of Hatch. "'What, Roger, won't you buy the poultry?' exclaimed Swift. "'No, sir,' said Roger. "'I see that they—' are just a-going to hatch. Kelly the Blacksmith Although Roger took the lead, he did not monopolize all the wit of the parish. It happened that Swift, having been dining at some little distance from Laracor, was returning home on horseback in the evening, which was pretty dark. Just before he reached Kellistown, a neighboring village, his horse lost a shoe. Unwilling to run the risk of laming the animal by continuing his ride in that condition, he stopped at one Kelly's, the blacksmith of the village, 
where having called the man he asked him if he could shoe a horse with a candle no replied the smutty son of vulcan but i can with a hammer swift struck with the reply determined to have a little more conversation with him accordingly he alighted and went into the cabin which was literally rotten but supported wherever it had given way at different times with pieces of timber swift as was usual with him began to rate poor killy soundly for his indolence in not getting his house put into better repair in which the wife joined hold doctor for one moment exclaimed kelly and tell me whether you ever saw a rotten house better supported in all your life birthday presents it was for many years a regular custom with swift's most intimate friends to make him some presents on his birthday on that occasion thirtieth november seventeen thirty two lord orrery presented him with a paper book finely bound and dr delany with a silver standish accompanied with the following verses to dr swift with a paper book by john earl of orrory to thee dear swift those spotless leaves i send small is the present but sincere the friend think not so poor a book below my care who knows the price that thou canst make it bear though tawdry now and like tyrolla's face the spacious front shines out with borrowed grace though pasteboards glittering like a tinselled coat a rasa tabula within denote yet if a venal and corrupted age and modern vices should provoke thy rage if warned once more by their impending fate a sinking country and an injured state thy great assistance should again demand and call forth reason to defend the land then shall we view these sheets with glad surprise inspired with thought and speaking to our eyes each vacant space shall then enriched dispense true force of eloquence and nervous sense inform the judgment animate the heart and sacred rules of policy impart the spangled covering bright with splendid ore shall cheat the sight with empty show no more but lead us inward to those golden mines where all thy soul in native lustre shines so when the eye surveys some lovely fair with bloom of beauty graced with shape and air how is the rapture heightened when we find the form excelled by her celestial mind verses left with a silver standish on the dean's desk by dr delaney hither from mexico i came to serve a proud ierian dame was long submitted to her will at length she lost me at quadrille through various shapes i often passed still hoping to have rest at last and still ambitious to obtain admittance to the patriot dean and sometimes got within his door but soon turned out to serve the poor not strolling idleness to aid but honest industry decayed 
at length an artist purchased me and wrought me to the shape you see this done to hermes i applied o oh, hermes gratify my pride be it my fate to serve a sage the greatest genius of his age that matchless pen let me supply whose living lines will never die i grant your suit the god replied and here he left me to reside verses by swift on the occasion a paper book is sent by boyle too neatly gilt for me to soil delaney sends a silver standish when i no more a pen can brandish let both around my tomb be placed as trophies of a muse deceased and let the friendly lines they writ in praise of long departed wit be graved on either side in columns more to my praise than all my volumes to burst with envy spite and rage the vandals of the present age the dean's contributory dinner dean swift once invited to dinner several of the first noblemen and gentlemen in dublin a servant announced the dinner and the dean led the way to the dining-room to each chair was a servant a bottle of wine a roll and an inverted plate on taking his seat the dean desired the guests to arrange themselves according to their own ideas of precedence and fall to the company was astonished to find the table without a dish or any provisions the lord chancellor who was present said mr dean we do not see the joke then i will show it you answered the dean turning up his plate under which was a half a crown and a bill of fare from a neighboring tavern here sir said he to his servant bring me a plate of goose the company caught the idea and each man sent his plate and half a crown covers with everything that the appetites of the moment dictated soon appeared the novelty the peculiarity of the manner and the unexpected circumstances altogether excited the plaudits of the noble guests who declared themselves particularly gratified by the dean's entertainment well said the dean gentlemen if you have dined i will order dessert a large roll of paper presenting the particulars of a splendid dinner was produced with an estimate of expense the dean requested the accountant general to deduct the half-crowns from the amount observing that as his noble guests were pleased to express their satisfaction with the dinner he begged their advice and assistance in disposing of the fragments and crumbs as he termed the balance mentioned by the accountant general which was two hundred and fifty pounds the company said that no person was capable of instructing the dean in things of that nature after the circulation of the finest wines the most judicious remarks on charity and its abuse were introduced and it was agreed that the proper objects of liberal relief were well-educated families who from affluence or the expectation of it were reduced through misfortune to silent despair 
the dean then divided the sum by the number of his guests and addressed them according to their respective private characters with which no one was perhaps better acquainted you my lords said the dean to several young noblemen i wish to introduce to some new acquaintance who will at least make their acknowledgment for your favours with sincerity you my reverend lords addressing the bishops present adhere so closely to the spirit of the scriptures that your left hands are literally ignorant of the beneficence of your right you my lord of kildare and the two noble lords near you i will not entrust with any part of this money as you have been long in the usurious habits of lending your own on such occasions but your assistance my lord of kerry i must entreat as charity covereth a multitude of sins swift and bettesworth dean swift having taken a strong dislike to sergeant bettesworth revenged himself by the following lines in one of his poems so at the bar the booby bettesworth though half a crown outpays his sweatsworth who knows in law nor text nor margent call singleton his brother sergeant the poem was sent to bettesworth when he was in company with some of his friends he read it aloud till he had finished the lines relating to himself he then flung it down with great violence trembled and turned pale after some pause his rage for a while depriving him of utterance he took out his penknife and swore he would cut off the dean's ears with it soon after he went to seek the dean at his house and not finding him at home followed him to a friend's where he had an interview with him upon entering the room swift desired to know his commands sir says he i am sergeant bettesworth in his usual pompous way of pronouncing his name in three distinct syllables of what regiment pray says swift oh mr dean we know your powers of raillery you know me well enough that i am one of his majesty's sergeants at law what then sir why then sir i am come to demand of you whether you are the author of this poem producing it and the villainous lines on me at the same time reading them aloud with great vehemence of emphasis and much gesticulation sir said swift it was a piece of advice given me in my early days by lord somers never to own or disown any writing laid to my charge because if i did this in some cases whatever i did not disown afterwards would infallibly be imputed to me as mine now sir i take this to have been a very wise maxim and as such have followed it ever since and i believe it will hardly be in the power of all your rhetoric as great a master as you are of it to make me swerve from that rule bettesworth replied well since you will give me no satisfaction in this affair let me tell you that your gown is alone your protection and then left the room 
The sergeant, continuing to utter violent threats against the dean, there was an association formed, and signed by all the principal inhabitants of the neighborhood, to stand by and support their generous benefactor against any one who should attempt to offer the least injury to his person or fortune. Besides, the public indignation became so strong against the sergeant that although he had made a considerable figure at the bar, he now lost his business and was seldom employed in any suit afterwards. SWIFT AMONG THE LAWYERS Dean Swift, having preached an assize sermon in Ireland, was invited to dine with the judges, and having in his sermon considered the use and abuse of the law, he then pressed a little hard upon those counsellors who plead causes which they knew in their consciences to be wrong. When dinner was over, and the glass began to go round, a young barrister retorted upon the dean and after several altercations the counsellor asked him if the devil was to die whether a parson might not be found who for money would preach his funeral yes said swift i would gladly be the man and i would then give the devil his due as i have this day done his children preaching patriotism Dean Swift is said to have jocularly remarked that he never preached but twice in his life, and then they were not sermons but pamphlets. Being asked upon what subject, he replied, they were against Wood's halfpence. One of these sermons has been preserved and is from this text. As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men. Its object was to show the great want of public spirit in Ireland, and to enforce the necessity of practising that virtue. I confess, said he, it was chiefly the consideration of the great danger we are in, which engaged me to discourse to you on this subject, to exhort you to a love of your country and a public spirit, when all you have is at stake to prefer the interest of your prince and your fellow-subjects before that of one destructive impostor, and a few of his adherents. Perhaps it may be thought by some that this way of discoursing is not so proper from the pulpit, but surely when an open attempt is made, and far carried on, to make a great kingdom one large poorhouse, to deprive us of all means to excite hospitality or charity, to turn our cities and churches into ruins, to make this country a desert for wild beasts and robbers, to destroy all arts and sciences, all trades and manufactures, and the very tillage of the ground, only to enrich one obscure, ill-designing projector and his followers. It is time for the pastor to cry out that the wolf is getting into his flock, to warn them to stand together, and all to consult the common safety, and God be praised for his infinite goodness in raising such a spirit of union among us, at least in this point, 
in the midst of all our former divisions, which union, if it continues, will in all probability defeat the pernicious design of this pestilent enemy to the nation. It will scarcely be credited that this dreadful description, when stripped of its exaggerations, meant no more than that Ireland might lose about six thousand a year during Wood's patent for coining halfpence. Swift and his butler During the publication of the Draper's letters, Swift was particularly careful to conceal himself from being known as the author. The only persons in the secret were Robert Blakely, his butler, whom he employed as an amanuensis, and Dr. Sheridan. It happened that on the very evening before the proclamation, offering a reward of three hundred pounds for discovering the author of these letters was issued, Robert Blakely stopped out later than usual without his master's leave. The dean ordered the door to be locked at the accustomed hour and shut him out. The next morning the poor fellow appeared before his master with marks of great contrition. Swift would hear no excuses, but abusing him severely, bade him strip off his livery and quit the house instantly. What, said he, is it because I am in your power that you dare to take these liberties with me? Get out of my house and receive the reward of your treachery. Mrs. Johnson, Stella, who was at the deanery, did not interfere but immediately dispatched a messenger to Dr. Sheridan, who on his arrival found Robert walking up and down the hall in great agitation. The doctor bade him not be uneasy, as he would try to pacify the dean, so that he should continue in his place. "'This is not what vexes me,' replied Robert, "'though to be sure I should be sorry to lose so good a master.' But what grieves me to the soul is that my master should have so bad an opinion of me as to suppose me capable of betraying him for any reward whatever. When this was related to the dean, he was so struck with the honor and generosity of the sentiment, which it exhibited in one so humble in life, that he immediately restored him to his situation, and was not long in rewarding his fidelity. The place of verger to the cathedral becoming vacant, Swift called Robert to him, and asked him if he had any clothes of his own that were not a livery. Robert replying in the affirmative, he desired him to take off his livery and put them on. The poor fellow, quite astonished, begged to know what crime he had committed that he was to be discharged. The dean bade him do as he was ordered. And when he returned in his new dress, the dean called all the other servants into the room, and told them that they were no longer to consider him as their fellow-servant Robert, but as Mr. Blakely, verger of St. Patrick's Cathedral, an office which he had bestowed on him for his faithful services, and as proof of that sure reward which honesty and fidelity would always obtain his Saturnalia. Dean Swift, 
among other eccentricities, determined upon having a feast once a year in imitation of the Saturnalia in ancient Rome. In this project he engaged several persons of rank, and his plan was put in execution at the deanery house, when all the servants were seated, and every gentleman placed behind his own servant, the dean's footman, who presided, found fault with some meat that was not done to his taste, and, imitating his master on such occasions, threw it at him. But the dean was either so mortified by the reproof, or so provoked at the insult, that he flew into a violent passion, beat the fellow, and dispersed the whole assembly. Thus abruptly terminated the dean's Saturnalia. THE DEAN AND FAULKNER George Faulkner, the Dublin printer, once called on Dean Swift on his return from London, dressed in a rich coat of silk brocade and gold lace, and seeming not a little proud of the adorning of his person. The dean determined to humble him. When he entered the room and saluted the dean with all the respectful familiarity of an old acquaintance, the dean affected not to know him. In vain did he declare himself as George Faulkner, the Dublin printer. The dean declared him an impostor, and at last abruptly bade him begone. Faulkner, perceiving the error he had committed, instantly returned home, and resuming his usual dress, again went to the dean, when he was very cordially received. "'Ah, George,' said he, "'I am so glad to see you, "'for here has been an impudent coxcomb "'bedizened in silks and gold lace, "'who wanted to pass himself off for you. "'But I soon sent the fellow about his business, "'for I knew you to be always "'a plain-dressed and honest man, "'just as you now appear before me.' Swift. Arbuthnot and Parnell. Swift, Arbuthnot and Parnell, taking the advantage of a fine frosty morning, set out together upon a walk to a little place which Lord Bathurst had, about eleven miles from London. Swift, remarkable for being an old traveller, and for getting possession of the best rooms and warmest beds, pretended, when they were about half-way, that he did not like the slowness of their pace, adding that he would walk on before them, and acquaint his lordship with their journey. To this proposal they readily agreed, but, as soon as he was out of sight, sent off a horseman by a private way, suspecting their friend's errand, to inform his lordship of their apprehensions. The man arrived in time enough to deliver his message before Swift made his appearance. His lordship, then recollecting that the dean never had the smallpox, thought of the following stratagem. Seeing him coming up the avenue, he ran out to meet him and expressed his happiness at the sight of him. But I am mortified at one circumstance continued his lordship, as it must deprive me of the pleasure of your company. 
there is a raging smallpox in the house i beg however that you will accept of such accommodation as a small house at the bottom of the avenue can afford you swift was forced to comply with this request and in this solitary situation fearful of speaking to any person around him he was served with dinner in the evening the wits thought proper to release him by going down to him in a body to inform him of the deception and to tell him that the first best room and bed in the house were at his service swift though he might be inwardly chagrined deemed it prudent to join in the laugh against him they adjourned to the mansion-house and spent the evening in a manner easily to be conceived by those who are in the least acquainted with the brilliancy of their powers dean swift and the preacher who stole his sermon the eccentric dean swift in the course of one of those journeys to holyhead which it is well known he several times performed on foot was travelling through church stretton shropshire when he put up at the sign of the crown and finding the host to be a communicative good-humoured man inquired if there was any agreeable person in town with whom he might partake of a dinner as he had desired him to provide one and that such a person should have nothing to pay the landlord immediately replied that the curate mr jones was a very agreeable companionable man and would not he supposed have any objection to spend a few hours with a gentleman of his appearance the dean directed him to wait on mr jones with his compliments and say that a traveller would be glad to be favoured with his company at the crown if it was agreeable when mr jones and the dean had dined and the glass began to circulate the former made an apology for an occasional absence saying that at three o'clock he was to read prayers and preach at the church upon this intimation the dean replied that he also should attend prayers service being ended and the two gentlemen having resumed their station at the crown the dean began to compliment mr jones on his delivery of a very appropriate sermon and remarked that it must have cost him mr jones some time and attention to compose such a one mr jones observed that his duty was rather laborious as he served another parish at a distance which with the sunday and weekly service at church stretton straightened him much with respect to the time necessary for the composition of sermons so that when the subjects pressed he could only devote a few days and nights to that purpose well says the dean it is well for you to have such a talent for my part the very sermon you preached this afternoon cost me some months in the composing on this observation mr jones began to look very gloomy and to recognize his companion however rejoined the dean don't you be alarmed you have so good a talent at delivery that i hereby declare you have done more honour to my sermon this day than i could do myself and by way of compromising the matter 
you must accept of this half-guinea for the justice you have done in the delivery of it. Swift's Queer Testimonial to His Servant Dean Swift, standing one morning at the window of his study, observed a decent old woman offer a paper to one of his servants, which the fellow at first refused, in an insolent and surly manner. The woman, however, pressed her suit with all the energy of distress, and in the end prevailed. The dean, whose very soul was compassion, saw, felt, and was determined to alleviate her misery. He waited most anxiously for the servant to bring the paper, but to his surprise and indignation an hour elapsed, and the man did not present it. The dean again looked out. The day was cold and wet, and the wretched petitioner still retained her situation with many an eloquent and anxious look at the house. The benevolent divine lost all patience, and was going to ring the bell when he observed the servant cross the street and return the paper with the utmost sang-froid and indifference. The dean could bear no longer. He threw up the sash and loudly demanded what the paper contained. "'It is a petition, please, your reverence,' replied the woman. "'Bring it up, rascal,' cried the enraged dean. The servant, surprised and petrified, obeyed. With Swift, to no distress, was to pity it, to pity, to relieve. The poor woman was instantly made happy, and the servant almost as instantly turned out of doors, with the following written testimonial of his conduct. The bearer lived two years in my service, in which time he was frequently drunk and negligent of his duty, which, conceiving him to be honest, I excused, but at last, detecting him in a flagrant instance of cruelty, I discharge him. Such were the consequences of this paper, that for seven years the fellow was an itinerant beggar, after which the dean forgave him and in consequence of another paper equally singular he was hired by mr pope with whom he lived till death removed him swift at thomaston dean swift had heard much of the hospitable festivities of thomaston the seat of mr andrew see anecdotes of conviviality from his friend dr sheridan who had been often a welcome guest, both on account of his convivial qualities and as being the preceptor of the nephew of Mr. Matthew. He at length became desirous of ascertaining with his own eyes the truth of a report which he could not forbear considering as greatly exaggerated. On receiving an intimation of this from Mr. Sheridan, Mr. Matthew wrote a polite letter to the dean requesting the honour of a visit in company with the doctor at his next school vacation. They accordingly set out on horseback, attended by a gentleman who was a near relation to Mr. Matthew. They had scarcely reached the inn where they intended to pass the first night, and which, like most of the Irish inns at that time, afforded but miserable entertainment, 
when they were surprised by the arrival of a coach and six horses sent to convey them the remainder of the journey to Thomaston, and at the same time bringing a supply of the choicest viands, wines, and other liqueurs for their refreshment. Swift was highly pleased with this uncommon mark of attention paid him, and the coach proved particularly acceptable as he had been a good deal fatigued with his day's journey. When they came in sight of the house, the dean, astonished at its magnitude, cried out, What in the name of God can be the use of such a vast building? Why, Mr. Dean, replied the fellow-traveller before mentioned, there are no less than forty apartments for guests in that house, and all of them probably occupied at this time, except what are reserved for us. Swift, in his usual manner, called out to the coachman to stop and drive him back to Dublin, for he could not think of mixing with such a crowd. Well, said he, immediately afterwards, there is no remedy, I must submit, but I have lost a fortnight of my life. Mr. Matthew received him at the door with uncommon marks of respect, and then conducting him to his apartments, after some compliments, made his usual speech, acquainting him with the customs of the house, and retired, leaving him in possession of his castle. Soon after, the cook appeared with his bill of fare to receive his directions about supper, and the butler at the same time with a list of wines and other liquors. And is all this really so, said the Swift, and may I command here as in my own house? His companion assured him he might, and that nothing could be more agreeable to the owner of the mansion than that all under his roof should live comfortably to their own inclinations without the least restraint. Well then, said Swift, I invite you and Dr. Sheridan to be my guests while I stay, for I think I shall scarcely be tempted to mix with the mob below. Three days were passed in riding over the demence and viewing the various improvements without ever seeing Mr. Matthew or any of the guests nor were the company below much concerned at the dean's absence, as his very name usually inspired those who did not know him with awe, and they were afraid that his presence would put an end to the ease and cheerfulness which reigned among them. On the fourth day Swift entered the room where the company were assembled before dinner, and addressed Mr. Matthew in a strain of the highest compliment expatiating on all the beauties of his improvements with all the skill of an artist and with the taste of a connoisseur. Such an address for a man of Swift's character could not fail of being pleasing to the owner, who was at the same time the planner of these improvements, and so fine an eulogium from one who was supposed to deal more largely in satire than panegyric, was likely to remove the prejudice entertained against his character, and prepossessed the rest of the company in his favour. He concluded his speech by saying, And now, ladies and gentlemen, I am come to live among you, 
and it shall be no fault of mine if we do not pass our time agreeably. In a short time all restraint on his account disappeared. He entered readily into all the little schemes of promoting mirth, and every day, with the assistance of his coadjutor, produced some new one which afforded a good deal of sport and merriment. In short, never were such joyous scenes known at Thomaston before. When the time came which obliged Sheridan to return to his school, the company was so delighted with the dean that they earnestly entreated him to remain there some time longer and Mr. Matthew himself for once broke through a rule which he observed of never soliciting the stay of any guest. Swift found himself so happy that he readily yielded to their solicitations, and instead of a fortnight passed four months there, much to his satisfaction, and that of all those who visited the place during that time. Swift's last lines. In one of those lucid intervals which varied the course of Swift's unhappy lunacy, his guardians or physicians took him out to give him an airing. When they came to the Phoenix Park, Swift remarked a new building which he had never seen, and asked what it was designed for. Dr. Kingsbury answered that Mr. Dean is the magazine for arms and powder for the security of the city. Oh, oh, says the dean, pulling out his pocket-book, let me take an item of that. This is worth remarking. My tablets, as Hamlet says, my tablets, memory, put down that. He then produced the following lines, being the last he ever wrote. Behold, a proof of Irish sense, here Irish wit is seen, when nothing left for our defence, we built a magazine. The dean then put up his pocket-book, laughing heartily at the conceit, and clenching it with, after the steeds stolen, shut the stable-door. End of section 2. Recording by James Carson.